Lord, as we now move into this time where we uh, can, can spend some time reflecting upon your word, would you soften our hearts? Would you give us eyes and ears that uh, are capable of understanding, uh, of seeing and hearing clearly so that we might um, be confronted and convicted and encouraged uh, in the good news of Jesus? If any of that happens, Lord, we know that, that you were the one who accomplished it. So work, uh, speak, O oh Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our guest preacher for today, he was actually here uh, last week, for those of you who uh, got to be here. I joked earlier before the service that, you know, you may see just a completely different group of people. It's the same church, but um, uh, I, I wasn't here, and uh, I know a lot of folks have been uh, in and out, but, um, but he's here twice, and, and we're grateful for the opportunity to hear uh, the Reverend Brian Sorgenfry. Brian is the uh, RUF campus minister uh, at Ole Miss, so he drove up from Oxford uh, this morning. This morning, right? I'm, I'm getting that right? Okay. Good. Um, Brian is capable of living with a lot of tension in the sense that uh, he's a graduate from Ole Miss, but served as the RUF minister at Mississippi State beforehand, and so, and now he's back at Ole Miss. Um, I'm sure he can tell his story better than I can, Um, but he is a gifted uh, preacher and pastor, uh, and we uh, consider ourselves blessed to have you fill our pulpit today. So, Brian, come. Uh, Look forward to hearing from you and what God has to say through you today. It's good to be back. Uh, thanks for showing up again, those who were here last week. It's always, you never know. Um, so, uh, but we really, I love this church uh, for two reasons. Uh, it is, it's pretty, we always say RUF is in it for the long haul. We want to see our students 5, 10, 20 years loving their families in the church. There's something beautiful about seeing Curry Ferguson up. Curry is a former RUF Mississippi State student. He might not admit it. Uh, leading, a, leading a search committee. Uh, he is serving the church. That makes me happy. And then the Rileys uh, are on the RUF committee and oversee us and really love me and my wife really well. So it's fun to be back. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15. If you look at the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes this claim that uh, he is writing this whole Gospel so that you can have surety about who Jesus is and what he's claimed. In chapter 15, I would suggest Luke invites us to investigate just what Jesus' posture or attitude is towards us. I love asking this question to college students. I find myself sometimes laying in bed wondering this as well. Like, what does the Lord of this universe really think of you? Like, what's his attitude towards you? Because if you're like me, I think a lot of times I assume Jesus is pretty frustrated with me. That he just, I don't know, Brian, you're a pastor. I would think you'd be farther along in this Christianity thing. That's just how I feel. And in this uh, great book by Horatius Bonner, this old Puritan uh, uh, in the book called God's Way of Peace, here's a statement that he makes that I find really encouraging. Because he says, a lot of us believe in Satan's willingness to tempt and to injure. But we don't really believe in God's willingness to save and deliver. And he says this, we will not give God the credit for speaking truly when he speaks in tender mercy and utters over the sinner the yearnings of his unfathomable pity. We listen as if his words were hollow, as if he did not mean what he said, as if his messages of grace, instead of being the most thoroughly sincere that ever fell on human ears, were mere words of course. And so I I just would like to look at this one parable, actually, Luke 15, you'll see it's one parable with three different uh, emphases and ask, 
how does Jesus feel about us? So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, this is your word. It's not, just, it's not just words or thoughts about God. It's your very word, your revelation of yourself, your revelation of your living word, Jesus Christ. And so I pray uh, that as we sit here and we ponder just what does the Lord of this universe think about us, you would help us to see Jesus. That, whether that's true of someone who is here who's trying to figure out who you are, And those who have been a Christian for as long as they can remember, we need to see Jesus. Would you help us? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here's the whole chapter. Bear with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, so these parables really are just one parable. Jesus said, verse 3, it says Jesus told this parable. And they emphasize the same thing. So I just want to look at the, the common denominators uh, that run through them all. And this, who are we in the parable? 
Who is God and what's our response? First, who are we? In each parable, right, or in the one big parable, something or someone is lost. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's two, yes, two lost sons. In each parable, that thing that is lost, I would suggest, is an illustration of humanity, of what we're like before we are found by God. I think you can pick up a little glimmer of what it means to be lost in each one of these stories. And so first, he illustrates being lost with being a lost sheep. I'm no shepherd. I have no idea what that's like. But uh, reading commentaries, a shepherd says that basically sheep lose their direction continually. Even if you go find them, they won't follow you back. They keep wandering away. The only way to get them home is to seize them, to tie their legs together and bring them back. And so sheep just always have to be guided and watched over and led. And what that means is mankind does not come into this world fuzzy and warm towards God. We come in like sheep, bent on wandering away. We don't want to be found. We're lost in our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, right, Isaiah? Secondly, he connects man's lostness with a coin, which I find really interesting because He compares our lostness to an inanimate object that's lost in the dark. How much much help can the coin give in being found? Nothing. It just has to lay there. And that's the point. Mankind is so lost that we cannot do anything about our lostness. Ephesians 2 says, says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. If the coin is lost, if it's going to be found, it's not going to be the coin's doing. It's going to be the woman's doing, right? And then third, you have two sons that are lost. The whole parable is that objects are lost and, there's, and then there's a person being found. You have the younger brother and the older brother who, who actually are both lost. Now their lostness, it outwardly looks different. But when you realize that lostness means being estranged from the father alienated from his heart, not liking the father, you realize that the heart of the younger and the older brother, it's the same. Now, the younger brother, it's easy to see that, right? He, he asks his father for the share of property, basically says, I wish that you were dead because he thinks that his dad and his dad's rules are ridiculous. And so he goes and he squanders living a wild life. So he, see, he thinks that life is away from his father. But the other brother is lost too. Right? Physically, he's close to his dad. Geographically, he's near. But when you see the conversation with his father at the end, you realize he's angry. He's angry. He refuses to come into the party. He's just as lost as the younger brother. He's alienated from the father's heart. It just looks different. But he thinks life is away from his father too. And so what you realize is that that this one big parable that tells three different uh, stories, it sums up our condition as this. We wander away from God. We're helpless to do anything about it. And we're cut off from the Father. Romans 3, Paul says this. He sums up humanity by saying, no one is righteous, no one, not one. No one understands. All have turned aside from God. We've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before our eyes. It's the same thing that was just illustrated here. So here's my question. Why would Jesus point this out? A pretty pretty bleak and dark picture of humanity. 
My wife um, loves reality TV, and years ago she used to watch, uh, I don't know if it still comes on, The Biggest Loser. Do you remember the show? Where um, there would be uh, a contest to see who could get in best physical shape, people that were overweight. And so, you know, I would watch a few, and, and apparently at some point during the show, maybe the third or fourth show, they would have this episode where the people would go to the doctor, and the physician would run these tests. And the physician would show them the numbers and outline the facts about their lifestyle and their habits and would basically show what their life expectancy was if they kept this up. And it it seemed brutal, it seemed hard, but really he was trying to get them to, to see the gravity of their situation. So they would want their life to change because some people that were on the show would say, I don't really need to be here. You know, uh, my sister's making me come. But it was sometimes after that that episode, when they saw the gravity of their situation, that they wanted to change. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's like a loving surgeon saying, unless we realize the gravity of our situation, unless we realize how lost we really are, we will never want to be found. We'll never want to change. And so what I'm asking you this morning first, and I know this sounds like bad news, but it's going to be good news, is whether you're a believer or not, I'm actually asking you to have a more radical view of sin and how much it's affected us. Because it's a more realistic view. Not so that you will feel beat up. Here's the good news. So that you'll see who God is. Because he's the friend of sinners. And that's how he's always known. He's the savior of sinners. And if you, if you deny, if we deny the reality of sin, and I'm speaking to Christians as well, of how we sin after we're Christians, you will deny the reality of who God is and how much he loves to save and how rich his mercy is. And so first, that's who we are. Wander away, dead, cut off from the Father. So who is God? Right? If the objects being found are a picture of humanity then the person finding the objects is who God is. That's his nature. And all three parables, right, that are one big parable, they show us two similarities about about who God is and how he relates to what is lost. First, none of them, neither the shepherd, the woman, nor the father, do you notice this? They are not passive towards that which is lost. They search for it. Right? And the shepherd and the sheep, he leaves the 99 and he goes out and he searches for the, the lost one and brings it home. The woman lights a lamp and, 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 and looks with just ferocity until she finds uh, the coin. She leaves nothing unturned. And the father goes out to the, to the younger son. He's waiting for him. He's watching for him every day. And then he goes out to the older son and begs him to come into the party. They are not passive. They are pursuing that which is lost because God pursues his children who run away from him. God pursues his children in sin. C.S. Lewis, uh, the famous professor and writer, uh, he responded to a letter uh, from someone who asked him, how do I reach God? And here's what he said. He said, well, about reaching God, I'm far less a reliable God. That's because I never really had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. He stalked me, he took unerring aim, and he fired. I'm very thankful that's how the first conscious meeting occurred, because it guards one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wish fulfillment. 
something someone didn't wish for can hardly be that. And I love that because C.S. Lewis, he, had, he, he found this beauty in the fact that the reason that he was a believer, the reason he was a Christian was not because of his good senses, was not because he was smarter than other people, was not because he was better, but because God had searched him out and had found him. And Jesus tells this parable, and I think we forget this, it's, a, it's in response to something. If you look at verse 1 and 2, this is why Jesus tells this parable. Because all these tax collectors, all these big sinners are drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the good people, the religious people who know their Bible, they're grumbling and they're saying, Jesus, I don't, I don't understand this guy. He keeps eating with and fellowshipping with like big sinners. Because eating was a sign of friendship. And Jesus gives the parable to say, okay, if you're saying that, you don't know who I am. You don't know what God is like. Because who God is is somebody who pursues and chases after and relentlessly hunts down sinners. That's why the reformers called him the hound of heaven. And that means this. I really want you to hear this. Jesus is supremely good news if you've looked at your life this week and and thought, man, I'm running away from God. Because you know what that means? He's running towards you. That's who he is. If you keep finding that you want to be away from God, the answer is to see who Jesus is. He is relentless. He comes after sinners, only sinners. And this parable shows that first who God is, is he is active in his pursuit of people who want to be away from him. I I just need to hear that every week. Because there's just ways I want to be away from him every week. But secondly, this parable shows you not just that God pursues, but God finds something extremely valuable, right? Think about it. Why do you ever search for anything? Your willingness to search for something is always, is, is always um, connected to how valuable you find it, right? I, I lose things all the time. I lose like spare change. I lose pens. I lose hats. I just, I also, I don't really look for those things that much. But there's one time in my life where I, real, where I had an unwavering pursuit of something. And it was when we were at this, uh, we were at SeaWorld with my family. And we came out of this, I don't know, some dolphin show or something. As the masses of people were moving out of the gates, we got to the end. And, you know, uh, when we were out from the people and my wife looked at me. My oldest child is Shelby. She was about five. And she said, where's Shelby? I've, obviously, that was not my responsibility. She, she was supposed to be with Eliza, or so I thought. And I said, I thought she was with you. And she said, I thought she was with you. And all of a sudden, if you've ever been in this situation, it just is panic. And I became singular in my focus to find my, my five-year-old. As I start walking back through the crowds, I start running And that, I think it was five minutes, it felt like about 30. Until I found her, standing with another woman, crying. Why? Why why did I have that kind of singular pursuit? Because nothing's more valuable than Shelby. I'll do anything to find her. And don't miss what this parable is telling us. that, That Yes, we are a lot worse than we think. We're a lot more sinful and rebellious and unlovable than we know. Realize what this is saying. You're a whole lot more valuable than you think. This parable is saying you are the treasure of God. 
you are the one that he left everything to get. I mean, I don't know another explanation of why in the world God came to this earth in the person of Jesus than that he finds you valuable. I think everybody needs to hear this. But especially some of you who you've undergone um, abuse from people that you should have been able to trust, whether that's sexually or verbally, or it's been all over the headlines. Because the lie that comes with abuse is this, that you feel worthless because of what's been done to you. It's awful. But what this parable is saying is your worth, your value is not according to what's, what somebody has done to you. Your value is according to, to whose you are. And that God finds you extremely valuable. Nor is your value dictated by what you have or have not done. And that's what we think all the time. That's what the sons believe, right? Both of the sons believe that their value is bound up in things that they've done or have not done, right? The younger son, his reasoning when he's coming back to the father is he says, well, I'm not worthy to be called my father's son. Not after what I've done. So, so make me a slave. But the father doesn't even let him finish. He says, give him the fattened calf. Why? Because your value, son, is not according to your performance. It's because you're mine. But the older son thinks the same thing. The older son thinks that he's valuable because he's obeyed his father. I'm good. That's why I'm valuable. In verse 29, the father says, no, that's not it. All that I've had has always been yours. It's by grace. And so the, and so the value of you is not, it does not come from what you have done or have not done. It's not come from what's been done to you. It comes because of whose you are. And what God thinks of you. And he says that you're mine. Value is always measured by what you're willing to sacrifice to get it. How much does the Lord value you? He gave you the most precious gift he could possibly give. The life and death of his own son. So that you could be his. And so God seeks and saves that which he found valuable. That's who he is. And it's you. And that just leaves us with, well, what should our response be? At who we are and what God is, and who God is. Again, look at the context. Jesus is not, he's not teaching this parable out of thin air. He's responding to attitudes about him. Because the religious leaders and the, are being confused about the character of God. They don't understand why this community of messed up people keep following Jesus And so Jesus says, here, I'm going to tell you this so you can make sense of who I am and what my character is like. I'm the God who delights to save. And look at the rhythm of the parables. There's a lost sheep, it's found. There's a lost coin and it's found. There's a lost younger brother and found. There's a lost older brother. And the older brother's still outside the party. We don't know. Why is the older brother the haunting person in the story? Because he's the only one that can't admit the fact that he needs grace. That's it. He can't own the fact that the way to get the father's love is to not earn it, but to accept it freely. The elder son wants to assign value based on his performance. And that's the one thing that God will not allow. And so our first response is to admit our unworthiness. To admit that we're lost, that we run from him. This parable really is saying it's bad to be lost. But it's worse to be lost and to not know it like the older brother. 
And so our first response, whether you're bored with Jesus today, whether you're skeptical of Christianity, whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, our response is to identify ourselves as a sinner. That's not our ultimate identity, but it is who we are. And if we identify ourselves as a big sinner, that means, according to this parable, that Jesus wants to be with you. He just does. That's who he is. He fellowships and eats with sinners. The only people who miss Jesus are those who hide their sin. There's a, uh, my, one of my favorite old RUF stories. Uh, and this comes from pre- a predecessor of mine years before uh, at, at Mississippi State RUF. Um, there was uh, basically uh, a guy and a girl. This girl uh, had, was really involved with RUF, and she was in a dating relationship with a guy that um, everybody else said it was bad. Uh, but she said it was good. You don't know him like I do. Dating hint, that means it's bad. I promise. If that's what you're saying, you're probably the one that's blind. Anyway. And uh, there was another student, a guy involved with RUF, great guy, had always liked this girl. Her name was Beth. Uh, his name was Kirk. Well, it gets to be her, uh, her senior year, and um, she, Beth, ends up pregnant. And at that point, that kind of watershed moment happens where she realizes uh, everybody is right. My boyfriend doesn't care about me. He just uses me. He doesn't love me. And so she breaks up with him. Well, Kirk, who had always liked Beth, finds out she's finally single, right? So what's he going to do? And they'd been friends for a while. Uh, so he waits. You know, you can't immediately ask the person out. That'll make you look desperate. Here's, you see, he waits the obligatory three weeks, you know. And then, and then he calls her. And he calls her on the phone. And, uh, you know, he says, hey, Beth, this is Kirk. I know we're good friends. He said, I, I've actually liked you for a long time. And I'd just love to take you out on a date. And she is so excited. She kind of can't believe Kirk would ask her out. She says yes, and then she hangs up the phone, and as she hangs up the phone, she just remembers. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm pregnant, and Kirk has no idea. And so she picks up the phone, calling back, and she realizes, I've just got to be honest. She says, Kirk, you need to know. Uh, I'm so excited you asked me out, but you need to know I'm pregnant. And there's this long pause on the other end, and Kirk said, well, I love pregnant women. True story. And they went out and they ended up getting married, uh, you know, later on. And that's one of his kids. Now, I want you to think about that moment that she revealed at that time what she was most embarrassed about, what she was ashamed of. She revealed it to a person that she really cared about. And that person didn't take a step away. He stepped towards her. And it brought real joy. This is the message of this parable. When you reveal those things to Jesus that you're ashamed of, the things that you're convinced push Jesus away, what you'll find is he'll say, oh, I love people who yell at their kids. I love people who struggle with with sexual immorality. I love fill in the blank. That's who he is. That's who he came for. And that brings the second response, which it means there should be joy in our life. It's really incredible. If you look, the constant theme after the response is joy. Parties are thrown. Celebrations happen. That the heavens actually ring out. Do you know what, according to this parable, brings joy in a party in heaven to where even the angels celebrate? 
What makes joy ignite in heaven is when a sinner repents, when a lost person's in rescue. Again, this isn't just about non-Christians, though that is true. It's also, Christian, if you want to ignite joy in heaven right now, it's not to finally have the week that you imagine where you never mess up. It's to repent. And every time it ignites dancing and singing in the streets of heaven. And what that means, I think, is there needs to be a playfulness about you if you're a Christian. A joy that you're actually a believer. Because the reason that you're right with God is not according to your performance, but as love. And that makes all the difference. Because as long as the foundation of being on good terms with God is built on anything about you, your performance, your sincerity, your morality, you will struggle with joy. And you can't throw a party. And you'll be like the younger, uh, you'll be like the older brother, always insecure, always mad at those people that have joy. Martin Lloyd Jones, old old preacher, used to say, "You know that you, you can always tell the difference between a Christian and just a moral person based on the response to this question: Are you a Christian? Because if you ask a moral religious person, are you a Christian? He'll kind of get mad and say, "Of course I am, right? How dare you question that? Because I got to be right." But if you ask a Christian, Hey, are you a Christian? He'll say, I know, isn't that crazy? Can you believe that? Like me? Save, like he saved me. What a joke. I wouldn't have picked me. But there's this placefulness because Jesus came to seek and save the lost and that's who I am. So you can throw a party. I'm not saying that you're, of course, you're still sad and you can struggle with depression. But there is joy at what God thinks of you. And this is where I think it gets convicting for me. And I'm going to start bringing it to a close here. Because this really does say wherever the gospel goes out, younger brothers, the wild people, the big sinners, they start coming in. They start coming into the church. I don't know this church at all. I know a few people. I, I can tell you this. I know my RUF. My RUF is filled with older brothers with people who think that they're, that they're better than others. And it starts with the campus minister. I know that. And the only explanation that Luke 15 would give is that we just don't understand grace. We don't get it. Because we don't like those people at the party. And I think if we understood grace more and the joy that comes with it, those people would come in. Don't let that, don't let that make you despair. Let it, let it push you to Jesus. Look at his kindness. Jesus tells this parable. Because he loves the Pharisees and he wants them to come in. And that's my final ask. That our last response would be to see Jesus. Because in Luke 15, somebody goes out and finds the lost thing every time. Actually, I heard you'll give away prodigal God. All this is stolen from prodigal God, so read it. Um, But you know whose job it was to go get the younger brother? It's supposed to be the older brother. That was his job. And he wouldn't do it. Why? Why does, why does Jesus put a very flawed elder brother in the story? So that we'll look for a true flawless elder brother whose name is Jesus. Who did leave everything. Who did give up the riches. Who really did come and because of the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised his shame and came for us. And he took our sin at the cost of his life. He was cut off from the father as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken him? So that we can be called children of God. 
so we can have the smile of God the Father by sheer grace. Jesus comes after us, not to shame us, but to bring us home to a party of eternal joy. And that's the final response. Will you see Jesus this morning? I promise he's better than you think. I promise. He's not disappointed in you. That's not how he feels. He loves you. And he calls you to himself. Let that be an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this parable. Um, uh, Thank you for being a God who pursues lost things. You pursue people who run away from you. You pursue people who honestly receive your love but then get bored with it. Our hope is that you, you love to save even more than we love to sin, and you do. So I, help, I pray that we would um, repent, that we'd embrace you, that we'd receive your grace this morning, and it would bring, it'd bring a, a real base note of joy in this place this morning. In your son's name I pray. Amen.